and welcome to episode one of the Backlight Podcast. My name is Michael Sorba. I'm joined here by my friend and fellow filmmaker, Pat Farrell. Hello. We are filmmakers based out of Florida. Uh, I am a recent graduate of Jacksonville University. Pat is a rising senior at Jacksonville University. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I graduated with degrees in film and animation. Pat is studying for philosophy and minors in jazz and film. He writes, he directs. I'm a cinematographer and a motion designer. And we decided to start a podcast. It was something that I really wanted to do for a long time. Uh, Just kind of talking about film, talking about how we make films and how blockbuster films can really be, you know, fun to talk about and dissect. Uh, and this was our brainchild. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, that's you summed it up pretty well. That was a pretty spot on intro. Um, yeah, as as Mike said, you know, this is going to be, you know, pretty, pretty lax, just conversation about film um, and about kind of what we do and how the the industry um, works and movies that we've seen be like a mix of commentary, criticism, book club just generic talk between us normal banter um yeah we we've had many film conversations with people uh where we lead most of the discussions and people listen and a lot of people really like when we talk about films and how we get to those conversations and so we figured it would be nice to kind of open that up to people we know and more people that we don't know and see if they also enjoy our commentary so and and the amount of conversations that we've had that last till th- two three a.m. in the morning, um, talking about film is uh, when when we lived together in the past. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> memories, sad sweet days. memories. Yeah, sweet memories, sad days. Um, so what is our topic for today, Mike? So we kind of wanted to do uh, an episode that was about a movie that we both had seen pretty recently. Um, and I had pitched this idea to talk to Pat about 1917 and kind of pick apart that movie, me being a cinematographer, him being a writer and director, um, and what we love about a film like that, also what we hate about it. Uh, and Pat came back to me and said, why don't we watch this other movie along with 1917? Uh, that's a Netflix original, and I won't give the name yet. I'll kind of leave that until the end a little bit. But kind of compare and contrast how action movies are done, both on like a an A-list cinema style and maybe something a little bit less. So uh, we'll, we'll start off a little bit with 1917 and kind of move into that other film and how those two kind of relate to each other, how they bounce off of each other and how they aren't similar. Um, and so that's kind of, that's our episode for today. Uh, yeah. But to start off, uh, I always think it's fun. You know, we're filmmakers, we're podcasters. Uh, what are what are some movies you've been watching recently, Pat, or some some media that you've absorbed that you think might be uh, cool to talk about? Um, let me think. Uh, so yesterday, what did I watch yesterday? Did I watch a movie yesterday? No, I didn't. I watched a movie the day before. Uh, I watched Cold Pursuit. Um, which is a Liam Neeson film. Um, it's a Norwegian. It's a it's the weirdest film I've ever seen um, because it's a <laughs> it's 
based on a movie that was made by this Norwegian director. And then this Norwegian director went and remade that movie with an American and British cast. And it's like the same story. But it was it's not like a remake where, you know, it's oh a Scandinavian film, like a girl with a dragon tattoo, where it was like a Scandinavian film that was remade in the US. It's legit a director who said, I really like this movie. I'm going to remake it with just a different cast. And I was like, that is interesting. It's weird because I was expecting like taken vibes because it's (laughs) Liam Neeson, but it's not. It's got a weird, dark comedy to it. Um, And uh, so I watched that. And then I've also watched uh, I watched End of Watch, which is um, that's uh, Michael Pena and Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, It's a uh, who's the director? Um, David Iyer. um, It was a director. It was a good film, a good piece of realism. Highly recommend. Uh, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, oh. which I have thoughts. I have many. I thoughts. have so many mixed emotions about that film. Yeah, and I feel like actually, like the 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 action in that film and the violence will be a good um, talking point and a good point of comparison for some of the some of the things that we'll talk about between 1917 and the unnamed Netflix film. Um, so, uh, and I think I watched some other films in between there, um, but. And I've watched some TV and watching Ozark and Last Kingdom and stuff. Um, but what nice. have you been watching, Mike? What have you been watching? Uh, I have been mainly watching Stranger Things. That's been oh, okay. that's been my recent endeavor. Uh, I had watched all three seasons of Stranger Things last year uh, and decided now as, you know, not really doing a whole lot, uh, Stranger Things would be a good rewatch. There are some really good pieces of writing in that TV show. That idea of you have eight episodes in a season or more, like in the case of the second season, uh, where you can uh, take all of these different viewpoints and kind of tie them back together. And so kind of like like revisiting that idea of how all of that kind of works together so that's been a really good rewatch for me uh especially like coming out of my senior year taking advanced screenwriting and trying to figure out like my voice as a a screenwriter and a filmmaker something like that as a tv show where i'd normally work in film was it's just such a great written tv show uh so that's that's really fun to be rewatching. i'm up to season two of that and the first season still blows me away uh, I also rewatched uh, Captain America: The First Avenger, the very first Captain America movie. Wow, that's a weird one to rewatch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that hasn't aged well. No, I definitely think I don't know. I was who was I talking to? I was talking to I think it might have been Chase that we were talking that I was talking to. But I was like, Captain America: First Avenger is the one in the Phase One uh, of Marvel movies. Which is funny that we're talking about Marvel movies because our the director of the unnamed Netflix film worked on Marvel movies. It's all tying you'll together out soon yeah, enough. It's, if it's everyone listens hard enough, you'll figure out who this oh, unnamed and, director and unnamed movie is. And David Harbour was in the unnamed Netflix film, and he was in Stranger as well as Things. some other Marvel actors that yes. were in this unnamed Netflix. Oh my film. god! <laughs> the intrigue, the intrigue is killing our audience. Um, yeah, I bet they have no viewership. idea what movie it is. <laughs> Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but yeah Captain America First Avenger it was like one of those films I remember with watching phase one where I was like god this is garbage I was like this is like one of the worst and I rewatched phase one and I'm like no it's actually like 
it's one of the better ones um i wish i just got to see more it was like a superhero for- film that was like airing on the side of being a war film but never really gave into it and i wish that yeah. they had given into it because i always compared it to wonder woman um because wonder woman was like in the same vein with world war one being the backdrop um and i definitely think marvel embraced that whole genrefication of superhero films but i you know i really want like a superhero film to just be like yeah this is like a war film but like infinity war was the closest thing to like a war film with superheroes um, yeah but you know yeah i i agree with you that didn't it hasn't aged well but kind of looking back on it i'm like oh this is actually it's better than i thought but it still hasn't aged well <laughs> Yeah, it definitely in the the relativity of phase one, it's definitely one of the best, especially within just the story scope. You have to introduce like one of the most hardcore known superheroes in the Marvel Universe as an Avenger in his first time being on screen. And so like, how do you do that with someone that has such a legacy and such like a historical presence you know he's mm. not just some guy he's some guy that fought in you know world war ii yeah so like how do you do that and so that was a really really cool way to kind of tell that story but i agree with you they definitely one didn't give as much into the war side of it it was kind of this in between of a romance action superhero war movie and it never really committed to any one of those yeah. things yep yep um so that was interesting to watch like the the, montage the vfx man the montages and vfx were just not great yeah it was so 20 what 13 12 um let me see 20 2019 was when yeah it was 2010 or 2011 because 2019 was when endgame came out and that was a that was 10 years since iron man won so yeah 2010 2011 yeah. It was it was that kind of where it's like there's like VFX where you're like, oh, like that's, you know, pretty good VFX. And then they just get just you just start to notice all the little little bad parts of when he's throwing the shield. You're like, man, that looks really blocky. Like there's <laughs> the texture on that shield is just completely gone. And then it comes yeah. back into his hand and you're like, wow, that's a prop. <laughs> <laughs> the best was when he like hurdles fences and it's like, yeah uh that really didn't cut together but i think i think captain america is a very good segue into what we're talking about today in Mm. terms of action movies and the different ways that you can do action Mm. and i'm very picky with action movies very picky with war films and action films i'm not super heavy into the over the top violence scheme Mm. of things uh i think if you want to do violence and realism uh you can do it in a very good and tasteful way uh i feel like you know goodfellas and the godfather and some uh early scorsese films and uh especially you know that turn of the 1970s 1980s when violence was becoming more renowned in cinema it was less censored and a little bit more uh popular there were some films that went over the top and there were some films that did it extremely tastefully. And that was something that I've really latched onto is this idea of when you're making a film, how far can you go with violence until it's just complete desensitization and 
you're not supposed to feel it anymore. I like if you have a gunshot and if you have someone dying, you kind of feel that on a deeper level. Um, and so that brings me to 1917, which is easily the best example for me of a film where every gunshot can be felt in your lungs. It could be felt in your emotions. It's not overutilized in this entire World War One backdrop where everyone was dying left and right. And you have films like uh, All Quiet on the Western Front or Saving Private Ryan, where it's a little bit heavier on the subject matter. But in 1917, you really get this opportunity to sit and feel for that character and feel for everything that they're going through. Um, and it's not just doused and deafening with gunshots and uh, over-the-top action and violence and blood and gore. And so it, it really lets all of that breathe. It lets everything settle into where you want to be as an audience member to really get inside that experience. I really think, like, 1917 like i know you brought up like all quiet on the western front and saving private ryan i think it was a very um interesting choice for uh for mendez to make it so that kind of the focal point for the movie was like the isolation and the desolation of of, of world war one because world war one is is in in media all over is a very untouched uh war compared to a lot of the others um you know, you have tons of movies um, done about the American Revolution, about the Civil War, even and World War Two was just overpopulated. You had the splurge of Vietnam War films um, in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, ever since Black Hawk Down and even kind of our unnamed Netflix film, it kind of addresses more Middle Eastern um, over into Western Asia, um, you know, kind of that kind of war, um, the modern era of war. So. I think that the reason you kind of feel like all those gunshots is because, you know, it's so like Mendez wasn't focused on the action. Like once you get to that final set piece, you're like, oh, like you kind of take in the full expanse and the breadth of the war. Then instead of, you know, like Saving Private Ryan starts off with the Normandy Beach invasion, which is one of the biggest war sequences in cinema history. By way right. of just how it's felt, not necessarily like what it's what it constitutes and what what makes up it. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that like what you're focusing on and we're going to be talking about like we're going to be very much doing apples versus oranges. Um, you know, we are comparing completely different kind of action films, but addressing the action within the films, because that's ultimately what it comes down to is, is action action movies. You know, when you genreify a movie, it's just how you're telling your story. So action right. films tell the story through action. They tell it through set pieces. Sci-fi movies tell it through science fiction. Romance movies tells the story through romance. Um, and I think that all these movies, when we talked about Captain America, we were like, romance, the superhero <laughs> action. You know, you have movies that hit on every little piece. Um, yeah. But it's very interesting to see how movies utilize action um, and kind of how the subject matter is then reflected in that and how when you don't have a, a strong subject matter, the action can be a bit desensitizing, as you said, and it can be the action by not having a subject matter. Um, it's like if you're cooking like a meal, like you don't if you're if all you do is just put a whole bunch of spices on a plate, 
then it just doesn't take like you have to have something to ground your audience in and to ground your taste buds in. you know if you don't just put spices on a plate you put it on chicken you put it on pork you put it on a meal um right and and so our unnamed netflix film you know it does it does do a bit of that but 1917 yes i i agree with you um it does a very good job at at focalizing action and i think a huge part of that is roger deakins and oh, yeah. everyone talks about no bias there. No, bias at all. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Everyone talks about uh, 1917 being Roger Deakins movie. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a valid statement that him and Sam Mendes coming together to create that atmosphere and create mm-hmm. that set piece that you follow Schofield as he goes on this journey um, is part of that it's part of the fact yeah. that it's less of an action movie and more of a suspense movie yeah you are really locked into that character more than anything to get to that point and mm-hmm. so that is a huge there's the the meat that you're talking about all the spices mm-hmm. is sure it's in one take and sure you have little pieces of action that happen uh and where you place the gunshots can give it a different flavor but the big part of it is the fact that it's more of a suspense film than anything mm-hmm. and it's genrefied in an action film because it's a war movie but mm-hmm. you really really dig into that action or the suspense rather that you're following Schofield the whole way yeah um it's definitely like a perspective piece you know it's just like hey here's here's your here's the lens that you're going to look at this movie through and then boom you know we're off to the races like that's from the from the opening shot it works that way um yeah and i think it was also like you know by way of like character in like action films um it and it didn't one it chose two very unknown actors to the to the movie industry you know they had done their stuff on game of thrones like everyone else and their mother um but you know they were widely unknown and so when people I had the same feeling that I had when I watched the war film Overlord. Um, Overlord's this—it's a zombie. Everyone called it uh, Black Ops Zombies in movies, um, and it's like Nazis that using zombies and stuff. It's actually a pretty pretty decent film, um, but it used pretty much an unknown cast to me. Um, I really—I think it was only one of the soldiers um, that I recognized, um, who isn't a very well-known actor, but. I would, it kind of immerses you in in kind of seeing a, a very unknown uh, soldier as if as if it is a real soldier, because you don't know. I feel like if they had cast, you know, uh, Mark Strong and. Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, God, Dr. Strange. Why, why is Benedict uh, Cumberbatch? Benedict oh, come Cumberbatch. I was like Benjamin Cumberbatch. That was just I was like <laughs> thinking of Ben names. Um, you know, if they had cast them in Schofield, as Schofield and Blake, you wouldn't have seen Schofield and Blake. You would have seen Benedict Cumberbatch and Mark Strong. Um, right. So I thought it was a very strategic decision to kind of make it so that you don't identify actors, you identify characters. And so you sympathize with them more. And and that way the action hits because you're not seeing actors, you're seeing characters. Right. Um, and so. it, when Tom dies you feel the character die. You don't yeah. feel that actor die. Mm-hmm. If you're seeing Mark Strong and Benedict Cumberbatch on screen, you know that they're going to be on screen alive for mm-hmm. most of the time. Yeah. And that 
very well plays into the next movie that we're talking about. And I think it's time that we name it because oh, wow. we're going to be we drawing name, a lot we're gonna of name it. Yeah, we're going to name it. We're just oh, going to let all the marbles out because I already feel like we're drawing so many comparisons and, you know, contrast points to that are like, oh, what about this unnamed Netflix movie? You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, we're talking about Extraction. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. I guess it's a pretty good movie. It's not the best movie that we've seen of all time, but it's mm. definitely a good movie to talk about because there's a lot happening, both mm. good and bad. Uh, that really makes this film something unique and something very Netflix. Um, The closest thing that I could compare it to that's a film that actually felt like a similar movie was American Assassin with Michael Keaton. It came out a couple of years ago and I went to go see it in theaters because I was like, this could be a good movie. I did. I paid money to see American Assassin with that one guy from that one teen drama movie and Michael Keaton and oh my god that was terrible so this does what American Assassin I guess wanted to do in terms of action and actually Mm. did it pretty well Um, but the good thing that you know you brought to my attention when we were getting ready to do the podcast and sit and talk about this and think about films that we wanted to watch was that there are different types of action you know 1917 and war movie action in the traditional sense of war movies is not the only type of action and john wick type of action is not the only type of action and there's definitely uh an overlap between the two and the way you show any kind of hostile you know movement in a movie uh is an art in itself Mm. um and so whether you are directing a narrative drama and you're super supposed to empathize with this one character as he goes across the front lines and goes into german territory to try and save an entire group of people or you watch one guy try and save one kid you can do it in totally different ways Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to empathize with the one main character and the way that you show the action and what they're going through can kind of change how you work with that empathy as a viewer Mm -hmm. so we talk about 1917 we talk about uh a movie that obviously nominated for a bunch of oscars really really fantastic film really well-made good production value when you talk about extraction you talk about a first feature which in itself is a extremely difficult task making a feature is not an easy feat crafting a story that's that long is not an easy feat but you also have the backing and the writing of some directors and producers like joe and anthony russo who have made really good films yeah and that were that was the top point of where i thought extraction fell was that you have the writing talent of some people that wrote civil war and winter soldier and the entire you know community series they like know how to do work really well and the the writing of joe russo for extraction was not fantastic yeah and like part of me part of me wants to say like 
you know, it doesn't have like it doesn't it's not meant to be fantastic. Um, and and I feel like that's that could be, you know, taken to like an excuse. Like when you watch a trash movie or you're like, oh, well, it wasn't meant to be good. Um, you know, it's meant to be it was meant to be garbage. And that's actually that's actually a funny point. Um, I remember when I went to uh, which uh, I think it was the BAM uh, Film Fest in in new york i remember i went to a seminar that they did on um it was on trash and it was on like good trash and like movies that aren't good but they're like not meant to be good and so they're Mm. trash but they're good trash i just immediately thought spongebob but like dirty garbage uh you know no one likes dirty garbage um because they were talking about ma that uh thriller uh act that thriller horror film um, yeah with octavia spencer i think mm-hmm. her last name is yeah um and they were like oh it's it's good trash and like i wouldn't say extraction is anywhere close to being trash um like there are some way worse action films um, oh yeah but i think that it you know it wasn't uh chris stuckman makes a very good point in in his review of extraction you know he says had anyone else pitched the film the script of extraction had a you know had you mike pitched it out of college they would have been like all right good luck dude uh, have fun yeah but it's not gonna get made so just put it away throw it away because it's not good it's not very original it's very derivative of action films um and there's nothing new that it really brings to the table but when joe russo does it everyone's like all right all right we can we can budget this and that's ultimately a thing in the industry is just the fact that you know experienced writers and directors have a monopoly where any idea they come up with will be given millions and millions of dollars. Um, yeah. One thing that I, from the writing aspect uh, that I didn't know until I kind of dug a little deeper on this film is it's actually, and it kind of aids to the, the argument that the writing doesn't have to be good. It's actually based on a graphic novel um, hmm. called see a dad by Andy parks and the Russo brothers, um, which I was like, oh, okay, like this makes a lot more sense as to why, this film has such a a focus on like on visual action rather than any sort of uh emotive kind of um action you know it's it's yeah. not something that you want to you know where you're just stuck on a frame of a guy crying um because also in a graphic novel that's that can be impactful but you know action sequences and graphic novels you know superhero comics andy parks has worked with dark horse before so you know he's and he's worked on daredevil uh, one one shots and and um a lot of uh marvel comics and it's just like okay then like it makes sense why this movie is so focused on having these set by set by set pieces um that kind of push the movie and slowly disintegrate all of india's army um you know yeah <laughs> which i thought was the funniest part i was like man india has no army after all this i was like they are there's all nobody dead. left at the end of that like pakistan better go for it and just take it over at this point <laughs> yes yeah, spoiler spoiler alert if you haven't watched this movie chris hemsworth just kills everybody yeah everybody yeah um it, there's nobody left in india at the end of that movie especially not their army it's yeah. gone all of it's gone um yeah i agree i agree with the fact that movies they you know they're good garbage movies i agree with the fact Mm. that you know this wasn't supposed to be the best written movie of all time i agree with all of that especially you know adapted screenplays and the difficulties that come with adapted screenplays especially something that's already storyboarded out pretty much you know 
uh, it's really difficult to get away from the source material for something like that. And I think that you make a very good point with that. Um, and the only thing that was running through my head was the 10 minute long take, but I, yeah, I mean, let's, let's talk see... about a long take. Let's talk about right, a long let's, take. Let's talk about it because we have two movies with long takes, uh, and one of them is two hours long and one of them is 10 minutes long. And the difference, mm-hmm. especially as a cinematographer, I see in those long takes. Yeah. Um, each of them has their purpose for better yes. or for worse. Yes. Um, 1917's purpose of a long take is to make you feel like you are along with Schofield the entire time and making it feel like it's one day and making it super empathetic experience with that one uh, character. Mm -hmm. Extraction's one take is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, It's this idea, it's a similar idea that you're along for the ride with Chris Hemsworth and the boy, which I forgot his name, Obi? Mm-hmm. We'll call um, him, yeah, Obi Wan Kenobi. That's what we're calling. We'll okay, just cool. Call him that. All right. Um, yeah, I actually forgot his name. That's really yeah, bad. I, I forgot his name. Uh, so Chris Hemsworth and the boy, Rake and the boy. Um, you know when the one take starts. Like maybe it's just our filmmaker minds working like that, but mm-hmm. I knew exactly when that started. Yeah, the minute they got the in the car, thing, <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, uh, and. You go along for the ride with them the entire time, seeing them, you know, go up and down buildings, go outside of buildings, go inside of buildings, go around on the street, by the cars, stuff like that. But it felt to me as a cinematographer like a one take for being the sake of a one take. It Mm. didn't feel, and the more I watch movies that attempt one takes, and I've attempted my own one takes, I know and I realize that there's definitely a purpose to good one takes Mm. you do uh, a film where the long take that's built inside has some sort of viable tangible thing that you can hold on to with the reason that you're going along with that Mm -hmm. it could also be the fact that i really didn't empathize with chris hemsworth want this in this movie and so i didn't Mm. really you know feel as strongly as i could have during that one take feeling the the nail-biting action of that um, but that's, we'll get to that in a little bit about why I didn't empathize with Chris Hemsworth, mm. but it, it felt a little shallow that it was just kind of the one take for the sake of being an action heavy one take and that you don't cut and that you really hold on with it. But what was beyond that? Was it mm. just action for the sake of action at that point? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that the, I would say it's like not the worst one take I've ever seen in a film and it's definitely not the best i think it has you know if you look at the rest of the action for the film um you know a lot of it is done in a one-shot fashion um and and that kind of came from movies of like 2014 mid to uh mid 2010s is you know john wick pioneered it um and then you had like movies like the equalizer um you had Kind of those I would put extraction if I were to like put it in a category. It's like a lone wolf action film. It's done in the mm-hmm. same vein as like Die Hard. Um, yep. And it, those kind of movies, you know, Equalizer, John Wick, what they kind of did was they made it so because a lot of them were headed up by stuntmen. Um, and this one is Sam Hargrave is uh, this is his first feature, but he's done a lot of stunt work with the Russo brothers as their head stunt coordinator. Um, and so it's kind of giving action more motion 
Um, and I think it's a very interesting concept and a very, um, it's very new to the industry. And I think that stunt directors and stunt men still have, it's basically when, when you have an action sequence, right? The stunt uh, team will go out and they'll preconceive it. Um, they'll draft up basically, this is what it's going to look like. And then some directors will go, no, 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 no. Like I want it more. Like, I just want less. And, th and they'll like draft it up to the point of like, this is how it needs to be edited together. And kind of at this point, a lot of people are like, especially with action films, like superhero films, it's like, okay, let's just take this draft and literally put plug and play it into the movie because it's done so well. Um, and you know, it kind of, it stylizes the action. Um, it makes it so that there's like a movement to it. It's almost like a dance. You know, I think of yeah. it's not it's not awkward anymore. It's it feels it feels choreographed, um, but it also feels very fluid and it almost feels like real to the extent of like these guys are super badasses and they're just killing everyone. Um, so I, I, I would say it's a very it's a very interesting way of shooting of shooting action scenes. But I think it's I think it does. Add something and I think a one shot really helps captivate like the the choreography of it and the constant motion of it um but i agree i think the one shot sequence there was a lot of cg moments in that entire movie that were i don't know if they were done at the very end i mean more than likely that's when bfx was done um or they ran out of money or they were just like all right just rush it because i know in that one shot sequence every time they flipped the cg it was super obvious um the car chase was the kind of part where i was like did this really need to be a one shot um, yeah the and action it like i was like that was the yeah. meat of the entire car the uh, one shot was that car chase yeah like, and not to cut you off uh, no, no, no go ahead go ahead you're good it reminded me of children of men that's what mm. that entire one shot reminded me of yeah, yeah. where that car scene in Children of Men is done with a purpose and it's done with the production mind so that you don't get those really artifacty CG moments mm -hmm. where when you go through the window, you can easily see that it's CG going through a window. Children of Men make sure that they think about all of the practical ways that you're going to do going through the window of a car to keep the take going. Mm. And that is like the perfect example of if you're going to do an action-heavy one take that's something more action heavy than 1917 but still confined in this bigger picture both the car scene and then the ending running shot when he uh is in the city and he's trying to get up to the buildings um at the very very end of the movie both of those take really heavy action and put it in a one shot that captures everything and leaves you wanting to see more of it before it cuts and also making it as realistic as possible that you're following this character. Mm. As I was watching the one take, like you said, I got pulled out a bunch of times because I felt like I wasn't watching Chris Hemsworth anymore. I was just watching a bunch of series of events happen mm. and kind of lost focus of who the movie was about and why we were doing this one take and why we were going through all of these things. Mm. The action was awesome. The uh, motivation was awesome. The movement was awesome. The dance of the camera was awesome. Uh, Chris Hemsworth is amazing at pulling off stunts and mm. uh, 
the director did an awesome job of like choreographing all those stunts. And so it's just really well done from the action perspective, but did it really need to be a one take? Like, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I think that that's, I, I thought of when I watched the, the one take from his direction, I thought of a lot of the one takes, um, from daredevil. Um, and, and a lot of the one takes that happen in John wick, um, and you know what John Wick doesn't have the the not even near the the length of of one shots that Extraction did that ten minute, but Daredevil has has done some really great one shots. Um, yeah, season I love three one shots. Season three has a phenomenal one shot that's done as he's escaping a prison, and the amount of like prep work. Because there's no CG in that one shot, I don't believe. And I'm pretty sure it's an uncut one shot. Because um, uh, I forgot who um, is kind of the pioneer for the one the one shot uh, scenes in, in Daredevil. But he, he doesn't like to use the CG. You know, it's always the hallway, the stairway, the stairwell, and then the, the prison. Those were kind of the three. Season one had the hallway. Season two had the stairwell. Season three had this prison. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of, as you said, one shots really have to keep you involved with one character. It has to give you one yeah. perspective. Um, when you're doing a one shot and you're bouncing between perspectives, I guess it's the point. It's the point between the people. It's when you're with one character and then you're starting to traverse to the other character and traversing to the other character in, especially when they're being pursued by the other character, you have to use CG. Unless you have some incredibly well done camera rig, um, you just have to switch to CG. And that's it's the motion in between. You know, you talk about I remember when we talked about 1917, Mike, you talked about how each when you remember 1917, you don't remember it as a one shot. You remember it as edited together because Raj did such a phenomenal job at crafting and composing meaningful frames within mm -hmm. each of the one shots. So you don't remember you know, the movie as a one shot, you remember all these individuals so beautiful uh, composed frames. Whereas Extraction, I try and remember that one shot and I can't remember a frame of that one shot. I remember kind of as a car was starting to go down the alley and the turn that it does where that's like a one shot where basically Hargrave strapped himself to the front of a car with the camera and just and did that. And I was like, I remember a couple of those frames, but honestly, I remember those because those were in the trailer. Um, the the actual one shot i don't remember many of the frames because there's not that focal point of this is the perspective it's kind of a perspectiveless one shot um and that goes along with children of men like imagine children of men in, in that one shot imagine if they were inside the car and then all of a sudden the camera's moving outside the car and then we change perspective to one of the people emerging from the forest it wouldn't make sense and yeah. it and it's that movement between the between your subjects that you would be like oh my god like this is vfx or this just feels pointless yeah i'm totally on board with that and to me one of the biggest ways to use a one shot is to really connect with that character and 1917 does it and uh i'm trying to daredevil was the other one that you mentioned mm -hmm. where it does it really well i've only watched daredevil all of the seasons once mm -hmm. but i remember each of those sequences as if i remember like watched it yesterday yeah. i don't remember uh birdman you know i don't yeah. remember the one shot from extraction i don't remember the one shot from specter uh mm -hmm. 
it, those are one shots that are kind of done for the sake of being one shots. And mm-hmm. in the case of Birdman, it's the entire movie done in one shot that really doesn't have to be. It was yeah. done that way just to say that they did it. And it's lacking that substance. It's all spice, mm-hmm. but no chicken, like we talked mm-hmm. about before, to bring that full circle. Mm. Uh, a couple of other. Uh, points. The last point that I wanted to make on that one take, actually, uh, I wrote it down. I felt like I was uh, in Disney World or Universal, and I was riding one of those like big screen rides that you have, like the Transformers ride or the Spider-Man ride. Yeah, it's literally what it felt like as I was yeah. watching that one take, and it's so like perfect to think about because they don't cut when you drive up to the screen and you see mm-hmm. you know optimus prime coming and slamming down the decepticons like they don't cut and that's exactly what it looked like and felt like as i was watching the that's a really good comparison yeah um it felt it felt on the edge because they, they because they had some redeeming qualities of like the action near the end overall though it felt on the edge of being gimmicky yeah like, just on the edge so of being close. like of, uh, of me just wanting to be like, oh my god, this is so gimmicky. This is so stupid. You know, and that's kind of like at the heart of, of our conversation is like cinema versus flicks and like the different ways in which you utilize things um, changes the, the categorization of your film. Extraction is a it's an action flick. I wouldn't call it a piece of profound cinema. Um, and I don't yeah. want to sound like Martin Scorsese um, because, you know, Hargrave did a great job for his first feature film, but you know, it's important to to recognize where movies settle in. I would I would give I would give it like a six or seven out of ten on the on its on its own if I were to look at extraction because I I, mm-hmm. I enjoyed the movie. I I got up from my couch and I went. This movie did what it set out to do, which is entertain me, make me like the action sequences, make me slightly sympathize with with Chris Hemsworth, which I guess we can touch upon because. Mike is a stone cold yes. killer and hates him. Um, yeah. Maybe I thought it was a funny point in the film uh, when the little boy is like, you know, don't treat me like you treat me like an object. And I was like, man, this movie treats you like an object. I was like, you get zero <laughs> development. Um, but, you know, it, it set out what it wanted to do. If I were to compare it to 1917, it would be at like a two and 1917 would be at like a nine or ten um, because yeah. that's kind of like the way you grade it. But I wouldn't be like 1917 gets 10 out of 10 and uh, Extraction gets a 1 out of 10 because then you're just... No. Yeah. And I hate people that use that grading scale because that's just not how you grade films. Right. I 100% agree. Yeah. And Um, I I know you feel the same way. So I would personally grade it a little bit lower than a a 6 or a 7. Stone cold. But that's also... It factors in my personal bias of not liking action films because i agree it's definitely uh, a six or a seven like on its own director set out what it wanted to do um as a unbiased objective grading scale that's just kind of like you know this is the film and this is what the film wanted to do and this is what joe russo and sam hargrave and anthony russo wanted to do with an action film this is what it can do I 100% agree it did what it set out to do. For my own personal grading scale, I guess you could say, I would definitely drop it down to like a four or five. I was going to say, you were going to give it a four or five. (laughs) Yeah, I I just don't like action flicks. They're not my Mm. thing. 
I definitely latch on to story. And if you're going to try and do complex cinematography and complex camera moves, like make it motivated, make Mm. it, you know, real. And for this film, it got a little bit gimmicky with some of the camera work. It got a little short with some of the story. And it just Mm. felt like a bunch of random violence that had no grounding. Mm. And part of that comes into Chris Hemsworth. And less of Chris Hemsworth as the actor and more of Chris Hemsworth as the character of Rake. Tyler Rake. Because um, I, thought, I thought Chris Hemsworth did an awesome job as Stone Cold Badass. Like, he really nailed the part really well. Yeah. Um, but the character that was written for Chris Hemsworth wasn't perfect mm. uh, by any means. I never uh, understood who he was i never got that he was like you know affiliated with the mercenary company as much as he was he just kind Mm. of felt like i'm chris hemsworth and i'm a badass and that's it yeah uh and so i never really never dove super deep into uh him and his relationship with his son a whole lot Mm. uh and the only time you really hear about it more than just little comments thrown is absolute total expositional dialogue when he's talking with uh the boy Mm -hmm. and says you know this was my son and that's it you know uh and you're supposed (laughs) (laughs) you're supposed to empathize on this journey with chris hemsworth and the boy as they go through this thing that yes Chris Hemsworth is pretty much thinking of this son, this boy as his son when you get to the end of the film. Mm. He has taken him from this really bad situation, gone through hell and sewage water and gunshots and wounds to bring him to safety and to bring him back to his family because he doesn't want to lose another child. He starts off the beginning of the film saying that he takes these missions so that he can, you know, hopefully get shot and you know, go and see his son somewhere, or at least that's what the mercenary company thinks of him. Yeah. And you're supposed to believe that as the audience member. And then you're supposed to travel with him to the point where he is forming a relationship and forming a bond with this child. And I never got to that point. I never got to the point where Chris Hemsworth's relationship with the boy was so caring that he was willing mm. to give up his own life for the boy and less of a selfish manner. It still felt like a, a selfish thing by the end that he achieved his mission of wanting to go and see his son. I never totally bought the adopting the boy as my child thing. And you and- could totally disagree with me, but that was, I never empathized with that. Never felt that I was like, yeah, I get you, Chris Hemsworth. I get you, Rake. I, I know why you're doing this. I totally, totally understand why you take a bullet to the neck for this kid, because it seems like it's just something that you do every day. You know, it doesn't seem, this didn't seem like a standout scenario for Chris Hemsworth, which is what we're supposed to be seeing. This is supposed to be standout situation for Chris Hemsworth. Doesn't go his way. Forms the relationship with the child. This is a unique situation that's never happened before to him as the story goes. And we're supposed to feel that. And I never felt it. Yeah. And like, I think that comes down to the the writing between the two characters. I thought that Chris Hemsworth and the boy never had that. They never had the chemistry, both on the on the screenplay 
and on the screen. Um, I think both of them did a very good job of acting. Um, I thought this was, you know, going back to kind of how we classified Schofield and Blake, I thought it was very interesting with this film. I wasn't seeing Thor, you know, kill everyone. Yeah. Um, I was seeing Tyler Rake played by Chris Hemsworth. You know, had it been someone else, I would have been like, well, this is a B-level action flick. So, they, you know, that's the reason why they brought in Chris Hemsworth uh, is the name recognition. But I didn't feel like I was watching Thor. In the same uh, essence, I didn't see Black Panther when I saw Chadwick Boseman in uh, 21 Bridges, the other like Russo offshoot of the Marvel films with Marvel actors. Um, But I really think that 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 relationship played into it was just the chemistry, the the written chemistry, because I the moment the only moment when I was like truly and empathetic to a character was really when Saju um the other mercenary when he was having that phone call with his wife and son I was like okay like I like this is actually a touching moment and I have to give like credit I don't know why you know I I really commend the Russos as producers and and Hargrave for actually casting people that aren't white um to play you know people that shouldn't be white um yeah you know the the bollywood actors from the uh villain the very um the uh what what do they call him the pablo escobar of india of of um and 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 the guy who played sanju i can't remember his name um they did a phenomenal job at, at acting and delivering like very either um volatile and inhumane roles or very empathetic characters um so I commend them on that because they they stole they stole some of the some of the, some of the juice from that movie by way of like they gave you something to grasp onto and to chew on. I think Chris Hemsworth, I I just think it was the way he was written. I think he was he was written stone cold from the beginning, so it was very difficult. You know, it's it's so it's that's the cliche moment. I would say the yeah. cliche of that film is tortured, uh, badass goes around kills everyone, learns to be nice. Um, you know, the minute you walk into his house and he's just drinking alcohol and like downing his pills with like a beer, I'm like, okay, I get it. He's upset about something. Um, and (laughs) And then he goes off a cliff and goes and meditates at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. And then he goes and kills everyone. And then I'm like, all right, this guy clearly has to see a counselor or a therapist. Um, (laughs) cause he just like, like you know downing alcohol and pills like his life's about to end and then he just goes and ends about 50 bajillion people's lives um so you know i i don't know i it was just very very cliche very derivative but yeah i do think that like the the character of tyler rake wasn't a very sympathetic character he's a character though by the end of the film i was like I was like, I really like, I don't want him to die. Like I was like, I know I was like, I, you know, I have grown to, he had a likability by the end of film. I wouldn't say he had my empathy and my sympathy, but he had my, I was like, I could get behind this guy. He's a pretty cool dude. Um, and you know, and we can also talk about, uh, the wonderful David Harbor, um, cliche role of like, I have that guy. written down. <laughs> that was, that was just weird. Cause I love David Harbor. I think he's awesome. I that was just a moving plot device that felt like something that didn't need to be in there as mm-hmm. much as it was. And then it was David Harbor and he was there for uh, 15 minutes as she should have been played by John Goodman. That's the yeah. role that that was. That was yeah. John Goodman comes in and steps in for 15 minutes, 
tells him what he doesn't want to hear and then goes on his merry way that i didn't yeah that was weird but like the minute i'm he, gonna the minute yeah, he came and picked him it. up i was like all right i was like this guy is fulfilling the uh classic role of old friend who is now secretly working with the bad guys and yeah. is going to have to die like buddies from old times you know it, it happens in in like every single action movie it happened in john wick one with Willem Dafoe, you're like, oh, they're old buddies. And then Willem Dafoe tries to kill John Wick. And you're like, oh, they're enemies. And then Willem Dafoe, like, turns around and changes and helps John Wick. And then he dies. Um, yep. You know, I'm spoiler alert, if you haven't seen John Wick, you know, which is six years old. Um, so it's also know. Matt Damon in Interstellar. Like, yeah, super weird cameo. Matt Damon shows up and is like, oh, I want to go home. What the hell? And yeah. that's that. That's but at least like his Matt character Damon. has like significance to the plot and to the theme. Whereas David <laughs> Harbour had just and like at least he's alluded to from the beginning. Whereas David yeah. Harbour literally they're like, hey, call David Harbour. And then David Harbour shows up in a cab, picks him up and is like, yeah. hey, I uh, got my wife. You're all safe. And then this like, all right, give us uh, give us like five minutes to have like an exposition scene upstairs and I'll come downstairs and uh, talk to you again. And he's like, OK, cool. And he goes up and he's like, my son's dead. And he comes back down and then he's like, hey, how you doing? He's like, I'm going to go kill the kid. And he's like, no, you're not. And then they fight and then boom, the kid has to kill someone. Spoiler alert. And then it's like, oh, no, you know, the the change, the amount of changes happened in the scene. I was like, dude, I that scene was a blur to me. That scene was the moment I I looked at my phone. That was the unfortunate yeah. time when I was like, yeah, I'm kind of bored. Uh, yeah, it didn't serve. It, it served as the only catalyst of change for Chris Hemsworth, the boy and the overall mission. Like yeah. their biggest character change, aside from Chris Hemsworth dead at the end, mm -hmm. is the fact that David Harbour comes in. Nothing else pretty much causes that change uh, yeah. until Soju comes back. But like that oh, it was so weird i didn't get it yeah. the other thing that i found really weird before we get to the biggest difference between us and our biggest uh gripe about this movie mm -hmm. um this is a really little thing chris hemsworth had an endless supply of grenades in that movie he just kept pulling out grenades from his vest that clearly could only hold about three and then some ammo mags. And he just kept pulling out grenades. He threw about eight or nine in that movie and just kept chucking them the entire time. And I just couldn't figure out where did he get all those grenades? I have to love the amount of times also, like if we're going to talk about like some of the, the funny, the parts where I was just like, this is so like ridiculous <laughs> was when he was like, I think it was like on the, in the final set piece, like when they were all escaping and he was inside the building and he went in like a market and he was like, I guess he just ultimate like activated his Thor abilities and was just like throwing people around like they were like grabbing them by the foot and just like killing them with the other guy's body. I was like, I was like, all right, all right. like this is this is some Thor stuff right here. Yeah. The other other really funny part was that uh, all of the main characters, such as Soju, the boy, Chris Hemsworth, everyone involved on Chris Hemsworth team uh they all had impeccable aim like yeah. one bullet to the face on everyone meanwhile the entire indian army looks like they'd never picked up a gun before in their yeah. life and that's like that's really this that's like i mean i don't know where it came from um it is kind of like the henchman effect i call it the stormtrooper effect um because basically all the all the the army of the villain just becomes like i can't aim i trip i like <laughs> die from being coughed upon uh 
you know it's like they're all <laughs> yeah, so, so terrible it's like who who vetted these men um and then my favorite other scene was when he uh when they're in the alley and he's like fighting the kid soldiers and he's just like slapping them and beating them up but, like <laughs> not killing them i just i was i was cackling at that because i was like this is just so just the way he was fighting them i was like this is so stupid but it's so it's so great it was just a giant slap fight i couldn't get around that all right the ending of this film is something that we have texted about a lot um yes and i just want to give full uh, i just want to i just want to let the audience and you know that my opinion on the end of this film has changed in recent days because of recent news about the film. Um, and I will explain that as we, as we go. Yes, and I think you're going to have a similar piece as what I'm about to say, because my feelings of the ending of the film have thus solidified since I found out about recent news. Mm. Um, so in the ending of the film, Chris Hemsworth is on the bridge. Uh, the boy is saved. He's under the care of like the mercenary company that's like doing the job to get him extracted. And then Chris Hemsworth gets shot in the lung and then gets shot straight through the neck yeah. and falls off the bridge for thematic reasons into a river. Mm. Um, in the coda, which is, this is one of those movie codas that I felt like Joker didn't need to necessarily happen mm. uh, the way it did. I think Joker needed a coda, but I don't think Joker's coda was very good. Same mm. thing with this movie. I think this movie needed a coda to explain what happens afterwards, but I don't think this coda did the movie justice. Mm-hmm. Um, the person that captured uh, the boy ends up getting shot, um, which we all, you know, yay, bad guy down. Um And the boy goes on to live his life and learns to dive and meditate under the pool water like Chris Hemsworth does in the beginning of this film. And then when the boy arises from the water, you see an out of focus person in the background dressed in a trench coat with hair that looks similar to Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, a white white looking dude in the middle of India white buff dude that is pretty stoic and is just standing there and is out of focus and when we talked about this i had said that that felt like the most cliche unnecessary piece that i would have rather seen the boy grow up on his own and become his own and kind of take the teachings of what chris hemsworth talked to him about that one time in the bedroom and you know go and live a a better life than his father and Soju and stuff like that. Yeah. And instead, this is the ending that we're met with, where it's supposed to draw a parallel to the out-of-focus child in the ocean mm. of Chris Hemsworth. Um, and it's supposed to, you know, make you wonder as the audience, is he alive? Is he mm. still there? And I recently I, I talked to you about this and we we argued about it over Snapchat mm. a little bit that I despise this ending. I think that this is just a cliche ending. I think it's not necessary. I think if you're going to make a movie where you have an anti-hero kind of person like Chris Hemsworth and uh, you make him to be this stone cold badass and you make him kill all these people and you make him 
empathize with the boy that this is his son and he'd do anything to save his son and then he dies in the process of saving his son i think that that's awesome what i recently found out and i'm wondering if you just recently found out the same thing is that sam hargrave did a showing of the film before release on its first edit with the intended written ending that joe russo had written where rake dies and they edited the film that way and made it the ending like that and on the screening it was pretty much a 50 50 split that the audience was okay with him dying and liked that he died and the other half said that they didn't like that he died and so sam hargrave decided to make an ambiguous ending based on audience feedback and that solidified that this is a bad ending even more than i already didn't like it Mm. to me that shows that as a director it wasn't your voice you didn't have as strong of an understanding of the characters that you were creating as you could have um obviously ambiguous endings are a thing uh nolan does it all the time Mm -hmm. we love ambiguous endings everybody loves like the the you get to interpret what happens later but a lot of the time nolan creates his endings with an intentional idea in mind you want to know what happens to leonardo dicaprio next at the end of inception and Nolan kind of creates it so that there's an arc that has an intended trajectory at the end. It's meant to happen a certain way. And Nolan knows where his movie is going to end. A lot of directors that will create ambiguous ending films know where their movie is going to end past the credits. The fact that Sam Hargrave and the Russos said, yeah, let's just completely leave it up to the audience and let's like maybe hint at this but give the audience for marketability reasons the best ending for everyone makes me wonder what kind of a filmmaker sam hargrave is what he was trying to say with this film and what he was trying to do with this film because in the end it just felt like it was an ending made for the audience and not for the film and that's my hot take and feel free to disagree with me because it's a very very stifling hot take i definitely agree the ending is i would call the ending frustrating because i i like the ending when i finished watching the movie i was like that's a that's a that was where i figured the movie was gonna end i was like he's gonna come back in some capacity because thematically they had that little line of like you you know you just because you land in a river doesn't mean you drown. It's only if you stay submerged. But like, and I think it's a careful balance of how do you end a film that feels like a war movie at times? How do you end that with the balance of a cliche war movie and then also like a cliche lone wolf action flick? Because cliche of lone wolf action flicks is the character beats the bad guy characters beat the hell up but like he survives and then he you know goes on and he's changed that's the whole you know lethal weapon does all the time die hard does all the time um 
horror movies, the main character typically dies. Um, Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks dies at the end. Um, uh, Fury, all the characters in the tank crew die except for the private. Um, uh, Platoon, nearly everyone dies. Full Metal Jacket, um, Vincent Nofrio's character dies. Like, e- any, like even Kubrick met some of those like cliches. Um, and even if they don't die, there's such a negative impact that they've experienced. Yeah. Like, unbelievably negative. To go back to 1917, like we were talking about earlier, Tom dies, who's one of the main characters at the beginning of the film, and you think you're going to stick with him the whole way. But in mm-hmm. the end, uh, Schofield does what he set out to do. His mission's complete, mm-hmm. but he as a person is very, very drastically different as if a piece of him has died from inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not him actually being dead but he definitely has experienced some stuff that has made him a lifeless person by the end of that film yeah and i think that like i think that had he died the way he died on screen and had he never shown up i would have been like yeah that kind of feels inconclusive especially regarding the like theme that they're trying to push forward had he perhaps somehow in i don't know had he maybe like fallen into the water right and then we get like another underwater shot of him and like almost he chooses to say submerged um but then like if you if you were to make it so that he's like stay submerged in the water as he's dying but then you cut to him and his kid at the beach and they're like emerging from the water together I would have been like, okay, that would have made a lot of sense. That like shows that like it it does like the submergence that that motif isn't taken literally, it's taken metaphorically, and it makes sense. Like, okay, this character because it, it makes it seem like the reality of his situation of like fighting all these people is like his purgatory, and now he's kind of like made it out and that he's he's emerged as a different person and he's kind of forgiven himself. Um whereas when he just dies, I was like, Well, that's a garbage death. And then the kid, you know, going to the pool, I was like, okay, you know, I have no problem with this. Like, it's just like a code explaining where he is. Um, I felt the killing of the bad guy just in the bathroom, with no security by the girl. I was like, why didn't they do this to begin with? <laughs> like, if they had done this to begin yeah. with, the movie wouldn't have happened. Um, so I didn't, I kind of, I was expecting Hemsworth to show up there. I was like, man, that would have been interesting if Hemsworth showed up and killed the guy. Um, but it was a girl, and I was like, meh, meh. Um, and I know, and then he shows up as a figment, and I was like, okay, it's it's satisfyingly expected, which I always find are the most like, just like, okay, cool, you know, like, cool, it did what it needed to do, all right. And some, and some people can hate that because they're like, you gave me what I wanted, or like, you gave me like, you gave me the the answers in the back of the book like you gave me what i already saw coming and so like it's you didn't take any real risks and i think that goes to what you're saying mike is like if you heard your audience's 50 50 split maybe look at a way that kind of works with both audiences but isn't this the simple cliche ambiguous ending um but then i heard my news is separate to yours um my news uh which i mean i wouldn't say i hate the ending but i was like well, it kind of, I like one shot action films, not one shot as in the cinematography, but like just like by themselves. This is a little film. Here it goes. I love Chadwick Boseman's Twenty One Bridges. 
I was like, this is a great film. Henry Jackman did another, you know, he did the score for Extraction. I love the score for That's My Own Bridges. It was like derivative story, but like it was done very well. And that's ultimately where I think those kind of movies, I would call them the Russo one shots of, of 21 Bridges and Extraction. They're very simple movies that anyone could write, but they're just done exceedingly well. Um, you yeah. know, they're very well polished, um, despite the CG problems of Extraction. Um, but then um, apparently the Russos, as well as um, the, uh, I think it was Sony, or whoever was the production, they've greenlit a sequel. Um, and they're hoping oh, that no. Sam Hargrave and Hemsworth return. Uh, they're sure that Sam Hargrave will return. And I was like, I was like, this is a movie. And, and it, it falls into the trappings of, of the 90s and 80s action flicks of you have a character that is cool and likable, which is Chris Hemsworth's Tyler Rake. And now they're like, now we just got to milk his character and put him in scenarios where he's having to do the same thing. And I'm like, frustrates me a little because i thought the movie was a good standalone and i think it should have been a standalone i see what they're doing because they're literally just falling into those trappings um you know my my same complaint with john wick but john wick at least had motivation john wick one i think is the best of the three and i love that film i love it so much um john wick two and three were sequels that i didn't need to see happen but what they do is they expand upon the world that you are presented with in John Wick 1. John Wick 1 has a load of just like weird stuff that happens. Everyone's an assassin and like but it has like a gritty sense and that kind of loses that grittiness by 2 and 3. Especially at the end of 3 you're like okay this feels more comic booky than it does like gritty like um you know noir kind of feel. Whereas you know Extraction I'm I'm thinking of where where are they to go with this film? Um, like with this guy, is he just gonna go rescue someone else? Um, is he gonna go. And if rescue- he goes and rescues someone else, then all of the what we've built up to know with him and his relationship with the boy completely mm-hmm. goes out the window because that makes the entire situation just one in a million that he just yeah. went and did, and that's it. You know, it takes it from this micro scale that we were looking at it, and now just blows it into an everyday thing, and that sucks and i think that's the problem of like his character uh, changed so like his character did change by the end of the movie which on one shot action which on which on um sequel action films like die hard uh even like lethal weapon to an extent like those movies you know they don't change like the the main characters just in the same situation rush hour bad boys they're all the same maybe the relationship's a little bit stronger they're a little bit more kind but it's like they haven't changed about some huge, you know, important point in their life. It's just been like, okay, you know, business as usual. Um, so I think that having this huge change makes it so it, it struggles to fit on this whole sequel route. Um, yeah. So that was the news where I was like, ah. and it's not really that the ending's bad. It's just that if they make a sequel, then the ending just seems less important because the ending mm. works on its own. It, I think it works well with the movie. Could I th- could have been better? Yeah. Um, do I hate the movie because of it? Uh, unlike Mike Sorba. <laughs> I, I don't hate the movie because of the ending. I just really dislike the ending, ending. and the entire movie. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just think that a sequel is not going to do it justice. I don't think it's going to add anything yeah. good. Um, so, you know, and I think that like 
you know, it's like if they made a sequel to 1917 and called it 1918, you know? It kind of... Yeah, what happened next yeah. year? What happened with Schofield, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like, I don't, I don't need to know what happened. Like, I really don't. And that's, that's yeah. the essence of, like, sequels. Like, I don't need to know what happens, but then someone's like, oh, but the money. <laughs> so... Stay tuned for next week when we talk about sequels yeah. because this is definitely a hot topic. <laughs> so, you know, I overall, I, you know, we've talked, we have a, we've had a lot of criticisms about Extraction, um, but I think we're doing that because, you know, the Russos made it, um, it's got Hemsworth in it, it's done so, it's been so well received. Um, you know, it's, I think Netflix's most successful movie, if not its most successful successful piece of content um so i think it invites criticism i think any film should invite criticism um even if it's your directorial feature uh directorial debut in a feature um i like the action sequences that was probably my favorite thing about it was literally the hand-to-hand combat i mean I, i've seen it looked good yeah i've seen really bad versions of that done like in kingsman 2 and um equalizer 2 and any of the twos of classic action movies of the 2010s um and i was like you know this is nice and there were moments where i was like okay this is like this is really well done um like the new york times said like oh the movie mistakes gore for cool and um uh technical prowess for choreography and i would say like the technical prowess comic could be made about like you know the the one shot but i think that i don't think it's overly gratuitous I think like I think it's realistically or maybe like hyper realistically gratuitous. Um, you know, when I watched Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, kind of coming back to that, the end scene, the end scene of that is hilarious because everyone's just these three people from the Hanson gang or uh or Manson gang, not the Hanson, um, are all dying because of Brad Pitt and Leo and they're going crazy on him and like the girl got like a can in the face and is like being eaten by the dog and just screaming her head off and is lit on fire. And I'm like, this is, and the girl gets like her head shoved into that shelf about a bajillion times. And it's just, it's just a gory mess. And I'm just like, this makes it's laughable. Yeah. I was like, this makes no sense. And I really don't feel there was much of to that extent. I feel like extraction was careful not to go there. Um, you know, had when the guys like, faces towards the rake and then tyler rake is trying to put his head into the rake rake is <laughs> i just realized how funny nice. that is. yeah thanks um <laughs> but i was like <laughs> had they showed like his face actually implant on the rake like as if a tarantino movie would i would have been like this is laughable but it kind of always just avoided yeah. that and i and i feel like the gore wasn't like people if people find the gore offensive, I'm like, watch the damn trailer for the movie and you'll see that it's actually pretty gory and pretty violent. Like, you can't complain mm-hmm. that a movie's violent if you watch the trailer and it's violent. That's like complaining when you eat a, an apple and you're like, this is this is pretty juicy and sweet. Like, what what is this? This is an apple? What? <laughs> you know, you don't... That doesn't happen, you know? No, and it's, it's a thing that I don't necessarily like but can understand. Yeah, and yeah. it's a thing that, especially with modern Tarantino movies, I'm just kind of shying away from more and more is where Reservoir Dogs started with violence that, you know, violence and gore that kind of meant something in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it meant something thematically. It meant something to the story and it was meant to desensitize you has now just led to movies that are kind of laughable. Like, I laugh at Hateful Eight. I laugh at Django Unchained. I laugh at 
yeah. uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I laugh at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood way more because it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Django is still a great movie, mm-hmm. but uh, it's laughable. The amount of violence, the amount of gore is just laughable mm-hmm. and it doesn't hold up as well. This movie, personal choice, don't like that much blood and gore because I think it detracts from the amount of action and hand-to-hand combat that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but understandable why you would do something like that, how you would do something like that, and the quality that it took to make that look that good for extraction. So kudos to Sam Hargrave for being able to be a stunt coordinator that goes and makes a movie like this, you know? It's not easy to make a movie. It's not easy to make a movie that's entirely rooted in action. It's not easy to make a movie that has that much action and try to put some sort of technical prowess or any kind of story into it. And so he does a good job at combining all the things. Some things are better than others. The action is better than the story and the technical prowess. Um, And so that says volumes about who Sam Hargrave is as a director. He's a stuntman. Mm -hmm. And so really good action, kind of lackluster story leads to exactly what you have with Extraction. And I think that that's like, it's a a good note. I'd be interested to see like what he writes. Because like that was, that was Joe Russo who wrote that. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of stories he's able to come up with. Um, Just because, you know, a, a lot of time, sometimes we equate like story problems to a director and i think like story problems come from they can come from the director most certainly but a lot of the time that's like execution whereas like root issues of like character interest uh empathetic characters um endings like that all comes from all comes from writing and like the payoff and kind of the structure that you that you create um you know we've talked about like when we when we talked about um oh what was it uh we talked about like Sam Mendes and, and Denny Villeneuve because we were talking because Raj constantly collaborates with them. Um, and, you know, we talked about how the differences in, in writing and directing a film versus directing versus solely being a writer and not directing. Like there is. That's why I think Nolan's films have such a great continuity and even Tarantino's films have such great continuity amongst themselves is because there's a consistent like writing director vision and there's such a consistent collaboration between that um that's why i think 1917 is such a an endearing film and such a well-polished film as mendez wrote and directed i mean he co-wrote it um with christy something um but she they had he had a hand in the writing process yeah yeah um and then you have character you have like uh directors like denny villeneuve where it's like he's like written a couple of films but a lot of them he's only directed yet miraculously they have like such a, a, a profound sense of continuity it's like it's kind of crazy um so i'd be interested just to see where sam hargrave goes um and and whether he's able to kind of craft a, a voice of his own i definitely think he has a visual aesthetic um when it comes to filming action sequences that is you know it definitely takes a lot of note from the action movies of the 2010s of course he worked on those you know he did winter soldier he did um what else did he do? I think he did one of the Civil Avengers War. films. Yeah, yeah, Civil War. Um and, you know, so I'll be interested to see where he goes from there. Um and, and kind of I know one complaint for the for extraction was people were like, Why is everyone's like imagination of an image of India 
just orange. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, the poor colorist of this film is just like crying in their house. Yeah. It was actually to kind of wrap this on that, uh, bringing it back to college, because we love college. One of the best uh, or worst criticisms of my thesis, because my thesis was entirely on color correction and creating a cinematic look through lighting practically pretty much I, I lit everything practically with the intention of going into color and just kind of amplifying it nicely and professionally mm-hmm. and one of the comments i got was what movies have you seen that overdo color correction mm. and i was like that's a weird question to ask but it makes sense mm. um and Movies that are colored and stylized with color are different than movies that overdo color correction. And Blade Runner 2049 is an example of a movie that uses color very in your face, Mm -hmm. but isn't overdone with color correction. Mm -hmm. I feel like Extraction was overdone with color correction because it literally just looks like yellow and orange the entire time Mm. and it's blue when it needs to be blue but uh going off of that comment of india just being orange it totally is and it's just it's color correction it's not the environment it's not the cinematography i'm pretty sure the footage that came out of that camera was not that yellow yeah you know yeah i agree like blade runner like mad max fury road like those movies have like a certain there they the color is there's an intention behind it uh, whereas extraction definitely felt like, oh, someone spilled a bit of orange juice over the uh, screen, you know, because <laughs> everything <laughs> is orange. Like Chris Hemsworth has never looked more tan. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that color is one of those things that and again, I feel like the, I feel like either maybe it was because of COVID. I don't know when the post-production like was kind of because I know this came out like early 2020, but I'm not sure how much early COVID kind of had an impact on the post of this. Because like the VFX, the color, um, there were even some like audio things where I was like, uh, you know, like, and even like Henry Jackman's score, you know, I was used to his 21 Bridges, which is good. This one was okay, but I definitely feel post just kind of felt, post felt a bit less, less polished than like, um, than like the actual production of the film. Um, and maybe that has to do with like directors and like, you know, Hargrave keeping, an eye on making sure everything meets his 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 quality um i I really don't know but yeah well that's uh the the way to wrap extraction for me is intention Mm. you know uh doing a one shot with intention doing character development with intention doing an ending with intention doing sound design and score and everything like that with intention 1917 is an action movie where everything is intentional everything Mm -hmm. has a purpose everything has a spot and extraction feels like a lot of the intention was mismanaged or misdirected in a certain way where some things fell flat and nothing really committed Mm -hmm. so very it's not a bad movie like we said it's definitely not the worst action movie of the 2010s or even 2020 that we've seen uh it's definitely a good movie Mm. but i i feel like it could have been a lot better i know you probably feel like it could have been a a touch better um and so i would definitely say to go and watch both of these don't compare them to each other 
uh, for our audience out there because they are two very, 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 very different movies. Look at them through their own kind of box. Yeah. You can kind of think of them independently of each other. And then when you've seen them, you can think of what you liked about each of them. And that that's kind of a good way to look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our, our yeah. films. I definitely want to like commend uh, the Russo brothers for like making it so that Hargrave has now been given a chance to do like his first feature as a director. Um, I think that's, you know, that's something Jordan Peele does. Um, and that's something that now that, you know, the Russo brothers I've seen do is, is I hope that like big producers and directors in Hollywood are starting to like look at people with talent below them um, and actually give them a chance and like a voice um, because streaming services don't have the same risk revenue uh, as theaters do. Um, hell, even Universal seeing that. Um, <laughs> Oof. Rip. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a lot of chances that you can make some quality stuff for streaming and and give someone a chance at, you know, making their first directorial feature or making or writing something um so i think it's it's a really good precedent that they're setting um the sequel stuff you know man and i think that goes along with your theme of intention you know was a sequel necessarily intended for nah let's be honest nah. not right re- not at all um so yeah that's kind of that's so do you want to do like a beyond the two movies um that we've talked about today um what is kind of our uh what is what is our, our our recommendation or our recommendations for for the next episode and for just viewership and entirely well uh i want to i'll start by saying thanks to everyone for listening to our first episode this has been a lot of fun i know you know like we said earlier this is something that we've wanted to do for a hot minute mm-hmm. uh and so thanks to us for making this possible mm-hmm. um and all of you guys that decided to tune in and listen to this, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you get your media, thanks for kind of hopping on and listening to us talk for a little bit. If you want to hear more, definitely reach out to us, uh, review the podcast, rate yes. it, do all this stuff so that we can keep making this possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and definitely give us feedback on what you like and what you don't yeah. like. Give us, um, let us know what movies you want us to talk about and what yeah. aspect of film you want us to talk about. Ask some questions if we could do a and a session. Like, mm-hmm. I don't do it all, man. Um, hit us with everything. So my recommendation for the week to come uh, is probably... Actually, I didn't think about that. Let me think about this for a second. My uh, movie recommendation. Um, hold on, hold on, just a second. Currently holding. Uh, um, I would watch Prisoners. You got some time on your hands, and you're not gonna do anything. <laughs> I would definitely sit and watch Prisoners, directed by Denny, one of my favorite directors, yeah. and. Even and then Roger Deakins behind the camera and the lights. Um, it's really, really good movie. Really nice theming put into it. Really well written. And Jake Gyllenhaal is such a weird actor, but he does a really great job in that. And so does Hugh Jackman. Mm-hmm. 
So it, it's it's heavy. It's not a easy movie to watch, yeah. especially the first time if you're it's not a, a long a, anxiety attack. Honestly, yeah, <laughs> it's great. Go yeah, watch it. It's a really good film. Um, and hey, maybe that'll be our, our topic for uh for next week. We'll be talking about Denis Villeneuve or or just Prisoners by itself. Um. For, I like that. For me, my recommendation nice. beyond, I mean, go watch Prisoners. I'm probably going to watch it. My dad hasn't seen it, so I'll probably watch it with him. Um, Do it. Um, Take my advice. <laughs> go watch a go watch a foreign film. Um, that's kind of my recommendation. It, it was kind of comes off the, the tail end convo of about the, the Bollywood actors and extraction is like go see like some talent from uh from actors from other countries and see how they act within their kind of comfort zone. Um, I know I have, I have the farewell to watch, which my brother's seen. And he said that that's a fantastic film it was Bong Joon Ho's favorite film of 2019. Um, stars Aquafina and most of the film. It's a, like a drama comedy kind of thing. Um, mo- a lot of the film is in Mandarin and then transit, is a film that was came out in I think 2018 and it's a German film. So I'm going to go and try and watch those two. Um, I just think watching foreign films is important, you know, watch, watch films from other countries. Cause you'll get like different perspectives. Um, so portrait of a lady on fire is another good one. Yes. If you haven't yes. watched a, a good foreign film that's on Hulu. Uh, mm-hmm. if you have Hulu and you're interested in a weird, but really good foreign film, that's one. It's definitely, yeah. Look Hulu foreign film is Parasite and Portrait of Lady on Fire. Those are my two recommendations. Yeah. If you have Hulu, go watch those right now. Go do it now. Do it. Do it. They're good. They're very good. Yes, they're very, very, very good. Well, this has been the Backlight Podcast episode one. Yeah. Mike and Pat once again, if you missed that at the beginning. Yes. But uh, we will see you guys next week. Yep. Adios, everyone. Thank you for listening.